I thought it was going to take 300 million to build Starlink. So I'd rock up and basically said, give me 300 million to start a bank. And they thought I was crazy. No, it's a bad idea. No, you're two women that have never started a business before. You also just taught yourself to code, Jules, so you can't be a real engineer. So, yeah, no one really wanted to give us any money. Never forget when you're raising money, really, it's just a sales pitch. A, what's special at your business? What's great about you about founders? And three, why is this thing ever going to make money? So in this week's episode, we've got a live recording for you called Funding and Financing Startups, which was recorded uh, in front of a live audience at WeWork. And we had a slight issue with one of the microphones. We've got three brilliant guests in the form of Alexandra De Pledge of Resi, David Buttress of Just Eat, and Anne Bowden of Starling Bank. But sadly, your host, Dan Murray-Serta, had a bit of a cock-up with his own microphone, which meant that there was uh, somehow a techno track playing across the entire thing. It was actually quite a good song. It's a good song, but we didn't think that you would necessarily enjoy it. So Rich has spent some time trying to edit it out. And how's that gone, Rich? Very badly. Very badly. So we've kind of got either the option of giving you a dance banger or the actual interview re-recorded. So we decided to spend some time in the studio re-recording all my questions. So if it sounds a little bit disjointed because of that, then that's the kind of professional output you can expect from what has become Britain's number one business podcast, but is still very much an independent pathetic at times don't worry it's only our fourth series yeah exactly we haven't got used to making good content yet rich you gonna say sorry it wasn't my fault you had one job no no i don't do the um uh, recordings at the live events so uh, i just like to make it clear it's jay's fault um jay if you're listening jay doesn't listen to our podcasts (laughs) he records our live events and then buggers off um, As the producer, I feel like you should apologise for Yeah, I, at the end of the day, uh, like John McDonald just said, you know, the buck stops with me. It was my fault. I apologise to all our listeners. I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm deeply ashamed at uh, what's happened. And I, I promise not to do it again. Okay. And with that apology, welcome to Funding and Financing Startups, Edit 2. So, Anne, can you give us the elevator pitch for Starling Bank? What is it? How did it start? Give us that. Uh, well, after 30 odd years in, in banking all over the world, I decided to quit my job to start a new bank. And in 2014, I set on the journey to build Starling Bank. And Starling now, um, sort of five years later, we have a B2C business and a B2B business. We have pl- over 600,000 retail customers, we have 40 to 50,000. Um, business customers, and because our infrastructure is the best in the business, we, uh, we actually have the biggest banks in the world using our infrastructure, as well as the UK government, to, as well as fintechs. So um, five years in, lots of things are going on at Starling. When I started the journey, I thought, of the, I thought it was going to be very easy. Um, I'd run big banking organisations around the world. Um, I sort of managed tens of thousands of people. I've managed a business in 34 countries. And I only had to raise some money to start a new bank. And I honestly thought that people were going to just give me the money. You know, I had a track record. um, But I had no track record in actually starting things. And my pitch was this. Um, I think banking is broken. Um, All the banks at the moment have old, decrepit systems. Um, Nobody trusts the bank. And what we need to do is build a new banking infrastructure for the world uh, that's um, API-enabled, that gives customers a better deal 
uh, that brings all the technology of Silicon Valley to the, to the banks, to the, to the customers for the first time. And guess what? Nobody believed me. So when you were going out to investors, like, I'm, just, I'm curious like, how this actually worked. Did you have the idea, you know, was, were you pitching a consumer bank at the time? Was it, you know, a one-stop shop for everything? Like, how clear were you about where you were going and where you were starting from? After a few sort of attempts, I think my, the pitch was quite focused. Um, but I was going around the world talking to people about raising initially 300 million. I thought it was going to take 300 million to build Starling. Um, so I'd rock up. Um, in people's offices in the States that, and basically said, give me 300 million to start a bank. And they thought I was crazy. And you just raised another funding round uh, recently in, in March last year, is that right? So can you tell us some details on that? How did you pitch here? What was the story? Um, we're a bank. Um, it's quite difficult to raise money for a bank. You have to raise money for regulatory capital. Um, it, takes a, it takes a few years to break even, and the regulator demands you have enough money um, to prevent you ever going bust. Um, so we raised um, 48 million in our first round. Uh, we recently raised um, another 75 million uh, from... Um, um, a number of investors, including Marion, and we've just been awarded 100 million from the Capability uh, and Innovation Fund. And um, so to date, we've raised 330 million. I mean, that is quite a monumental amount. So, did you have like a normal startup experience, like the rest of us, you know, mere mortals, where you have to meet 100 people, 99 say no, and there's just the one person that completely gets it? Like, what was your what was your personal experience? Well, I funded the business for two years myself uh, with the help of um, the big consulting firms. Um, I basically went to um, KPMG and PwC and said, I have this great idea to start a bank. I just don't have any money because it's very difficult to raise money. So can you just give me teams of people to work for me until I can pay you back? Um, and they bought it. And an awful lot of people put their careers in the line for us. Yeah in that they knew it was possible to build something that had never been done before, that was going to be audacious, that's going to be world-changing. Um, and a lot of people decided to, well, to make pitches yeah. internally in their organisations. So um, it took a long time to raise money. It took two years. But in that two years, I managed to get a banking licence, almost, and use other sources of funding. And uh, just talking about consultants, we've got a perfect segue into our next guest because Alexandra de Pledge was a consultant in her former life and now she's probably better known as a serial entrepreneur. So can we get Alex up onto the stage, please? And how did you find the funding process the first time around you had to do it? Um, so I just want to start by saying when... You do, when you do something like we've done, and myself, David, everything always looks like natural in hindsight. Like, oh, well, of course you did. You know, of course you raised money to start a bank. But at the time, everybody thinks you're ridiculous. So uh, for Jules and I, we were two ex-consultants um, in a period before kind of Silicon Roundabout, as it's now dubbed, kind of got off the ground. And we were schlepping around London trying to convince people to give us money because we were going to build the Amazon of uh, local services. Um, and to be quite honest, what we'd actually built was a bit shit. So, you know, rightly so, they didn't give us any money. But And it took probably a good... What? Probably, like, a year and a bit to get any, any like, 250000 which 
like, you know, in my last seed round, I raised 1.3 million. So it was just like, it felt like a long uphill struggle because um, no one really believed in the idea because lots of people had tried local services before, you know, Kipe. Is that how you say Kipe? You're, you see, I'm showing my age now because most people in this room won't remember some of this stuff. But th there was a lot of like Yelp type people that had tried before. And when we came along, they were like, no, it's a bad idea. Uh, no, you're two women that have never started a business before. Um, and you also just taught yourself to code, Jules, so you can't be a real engineer. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no one really wanted to give us any money. And now that you've got your new company, Resi, you know, how did you find the funding process the second time round as you've done it all before and you already knew people and you knew what to look out for and what to avoid? You know, was it considerably easier? Um, there's not that many um, serial entrepreneurs in the UK. Or, um, let's rephrase that. There's lots of serial entrepreneurs. There's not that many direct consumer serial entrepreneurs and there's not that many women. Um, so for all of the male VCs, 98% of the entire VC population, getting two women on their books is quite an appetising... You know, they've ticked that diversity box and I'll milk that all the way, if I'm honest. <laughs> And Alex, how, uh, how direct and how open were you this time around when pitching investors and VCs? Because, you know, I know because uh, we hang out and you're, you're my friend that you are quite direct and quite uh, can be maybe even considered slightly aggressive at times. So I'd like to know the difference in your confidence and how you approach these conversations the first time around versus the second time around. No, I don't. I, I mean, look, I, I guess, like, I've built this public persona of being incredibly direct and saying what I think, and that is very true. I'm also incredible... I've also got an incredibly high bar for myself and, and for the things that I do, and so I never quite believe fully in what I'm selling. So there's, there's always a bit of humility there. So, like, when we went to raise money for Resi... So Resi's um, the UK's um, largest online architectural platform. I think someone told me the other day we've got 1.5% of the market already and we've been trading just over two years. So it's grown really, really quick. But when I went out to raise money the first time, we, we did it because of Brexit, because we didn't know what was going to happen with Brexit, even though we were building a British-only business. And we did it because we knew we could. We didn't actually do it because we needed the money. Um, and so I think that puts a different tilt on the conversation anyway, because when you don't need money, it's really easy to ask for it. When you desperately need it, then people smell the desperation. But when I went out, I was really, really honest and sort of said, like, I think this is a good punt, but I can't guarantee you're going to get your money back. But, I, you know, I returned... Uh, six-fold to my... No, 18-fold to my original angels um, the first time out, and that's a pretty good stat, so a lot of people were willing to chuck 50 grand in just to see, like, where it went. And now for a rare opportunity spotted for the first time without a kebab in one hand and a pizza in the other, we've got David Buttress, the founder of Just Eat, joining us to the stage. David, please. <laughs> I mean, that is amazing. Do you ever just pinch yourself at the, you know, the sheer magnitude of that kind of ambition and then execution towards the, the, the growth, the size of the achievement? I guess looking back now a little bit, you think, um, I guess it feels um, pretty good when you look at the overall what we achieved. But at the time, it took a long time. So it didn't happen overnight. It kind of looked 12 years of sort of gradual, gradual change. And to be blunt, you know, when you're in a flat with another guy trying to set up laptops and desks, you know, it was, it was pretty shitty. Um, so to actually progress through that journey along the way was just exciting, really. And, and actually, if anything, looking back on it now, I think we could have probably done it a bit quicker if we'd have known what we were doing. 
And uh, just just to paint the picture for our guests, just how long ago did you leave Just Eat? Two and a bit years ago now. And at that point, how many employees did you have? How many offices in how many countries? You know, give us some of the key numbers to help us understand where you've taken it. Yeah, so we got to, I probably did three and a bit years uh, after life as a public CEO. Uh, three years, three months, three days. No, I wasn't. <laughs> no, so um, we had about 12, 13 offices, uh, around 2,500 people. It was more, I think, for me, the challenge was where the offices were. Because in the end, we operated from Sao Paulo to Sydney, obviously London, Toronto, and then Western Europe. So it was one of those really depressing things that, you know, every time you went to bed, you thought you kind of cleared your inbox. You woke up, and there was another 20, 30 emails, and then it just never ended. It just literally went round and round and round. And towards the end, especially with the Australian business, it, was, um, it really didn't ever end. So it was more, I think, where we were geographically dispersed um, was the challenge rather than how many people and stuff, because the people bit I actually really loved. Uh, it was the bankers I love less. So, David, for the very few of us in the audience that don't actually have experience of this, can you give us a bit of insight into what it's actually like to take your company public? What's the process like, you know, time on the road? Just give us some of the key nuggets of information to paint the picture. Yeah, no, it was It was awful. Um, <laughs> It was awful. I mean, it's, you basically lose, I think, you probably lose four to six months. It's, it's like being on a work stag do that never ends for four to six months without the fun. For us, we, if, when we started Just Eat, we, we genuinely didn't know what an IPO was. So I think, you know, you have to go back to 2005. There genuinely wasn't that many tech startups here in Europe. There certainly wasn't many that had gone public. So we really didn't know what an IPO was. You said to me, what's not? I would have said, I haven't got a clue. You know, are you ill, right? So... Uh, is it a virus or something? So, so, um, so when we went through the journey of taking the company public, we were excited about it for two reasons. One, we thought, thought about it as a, this is going to be the sign of Just Eat becoming a proper company, and that mattered to us because we thought about sustainability. I think the second thing we cared about was being a really big brand, and we saw an IPO, especially doing it here in the UK, as an opportunity to really make our brand famous. So we saw it kind of in that lens, in terms of my journey as a CEO doing it, I mean, I was excited by the learning, you know, genuinely, because I'd never done it, and it was really interesting. The challenge why I said it was, it was difficult and dull is it's highly repetitive. You know, you're doing a lot of the same meetings, 45 minutes to 60 minutes, with different potential investors globally, spending a lot of time on planes from San Francisco to New York, Boston, and London, and you're probably doing that three times over. Um, so a lot of time on the road, away from the things that you really love, which is being with the people uh, in your business and talking to investors. And investors are good people, but I guess if you're an investor seeing a CEO who's trying to take company public, that 60 minutes you have is an entirely new 60 minutes for that investor. For you as a CEO, it's one of 130 meetings that week, which is with, often with the same questions. So I felt a bit like a hamster on a wheel, just going around, really, with a load of bankers in nice cars telling me, go in there now and sell just eat. So... I can't lie and say it was professionally exhilarating from that perspective because it wasn't. Sounds like raising, it sounds like fundraising period. Yeah, it sounds like normal fundraising. Yeah, it does. It is. Uh, and you look like you were familiar maybe being on the other side of the table of that as well. I think there are different sorts of bankers and they come in different sh it's sort of um, backgrounds. And in the financial crisis, I came to the conclusion that I was ashamed to be a banker. The financial crisis 2008-2009 was horrific. It wrecked countries. And the reason I started a new bank was that all of a sudden I became terribly embarrassed to get in the taxi and answer the question, what do you do? I'd say anything else but I work in a bank.
and I'm assuming you guys were pretty proud to say I run a company, which is obviously like a different sort of badge of honour and select. I think it is, but I think um, I think there's a mood switch, uh, mood shift at the moment, and one that I'm I, I kind of. I felt for a while, which is um, I'm proud to run a company that creates jobs, but I really want to run a profitable company. Um, I'm not sure I really buy into the whole um, fueling businesses on VC money, which is essentially backed by pensions that teaches consumers behaviours that like something's not worth what it's actually worth. So we've encouraged this discounting behaviour in pretty much every industry. Um, and I think that we're going to get caught short with that. So I do think that tech's the next bankers. I think the next recession, technology technology companies will be blamed for that. And so I don't actually class Resi as a technology company, even though it is, you know, we're a business that sells architecture. So I think... Yeah, I'm not. I, I can. I can kind of empathise with what Anne's saying about being ashamed to be associated with banking. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So moving on to the first big question of the evening, and it's around early stage funding. Now, you know, you're all entrepreneurs, you have an idea, and then what? What what do you do to get it off the ground? So for example, and I know you've just uh, raised a big round, and David, I believe, you know, Just Eat was the first tech IPO in the UK. So can you guys just give a bit of colour into the process to educate our listeners? For us, it was quite different in that um, when I started... Um, I didn't have a slightest clue about how VCs worked. I thought I knew it all about um, raising money from big corporate, from big 
um, sort of investment banks. I knew a process that didn't work when I was trying to raise three million. Um, and I was really, really not very good at it. You know, sort of, um, I didn't know how the system worked. I didn't know anybody in that system. Um, I was used to dealing with bigger numbers. I was a fish out of water. Um, so I had to fund with other means, with, with mechanisms I understood, until I finally, um, when I was out in the road one day trying to raise three million, um, somebody found me and, and invested 48 million. So, um... It's like finding a fiver down the back of your sofa. <laughs> it's, it's a nice surprise. It was, it was a very strange funding sort of process. Um, I didn't know how the system worked. I didn't know that there were such things as accelerators. I didn't know that um, you could, the process of actually going through raising money worked. Um, and none of the numbers made sense to me. Um, so then when I'd actually built everything, and had a banking licence, that I became investable. And David, speaking about accelerators and stuff, you know, when did you start Just Eat? 2005, uh, early 2006. So there wasn't, you know, a lot around, realistically, right? You were so early on the scene. So how did you go about, you know, you've got an idea. How did you literally go from idea to someone believing in you, especially at a time when, you know, bringing food online is completely new? Yeah, I go back to, um, I, I, I like that point about it. I think we learned as entrepreneurs to actually uh, early that you need to make money. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's probably a bit old-fashioned, but I actually agree. And I think there's, there's probably quite a big correction coming um, as a result of some of the consumer, especially the consumer tech businesses we've built, which have become heavily reliant and basically given an impression that a product um, that actually costs more than you get it for is a sustainable business model. In the end, you know, business models either have to make money or they have to wipe their own feet. Um, so, I, so the reason why I mention that is when we started Just Eat, we bootstrapped it. And when I joked earlier saying, you know, that we didn't know what we were doing, the reason why I say that is if you look at Just Eat and the quality of the business model and how we were growing, we should have raised money far, much earlier. We didn't raise money until late 2008 via Index Ventures, which was two and a half years into the business, and we bootstrapped it. So every time we made another £2,000, we hired another salesperson or, believe it or not, a tech person for £2,000. Um, I know. Then were the days. Yeah, that would just be the coffee bill. Now. <laughs> so, so, um, so that would. Um, so we, that's how we did it. And but as a result, I think Just Eat got two really important pieces of cultural DNA. One, one, it got a real sense. We created a culture of really a thousand founders, so everybody cared about the money because we really had to care about the money because we'd run out of money if we didn't. Um, and secondly, I think what it created was a discipline around what mattered in the business because we only spent money on things that really created growth. And as a result of that, I think when we finally went to VCs two and a half years later, the one thing lots of people in this room will now be familiar with, thing, the one thing VCs hate is risk, perversely. You often think VCs like, well, they, they hate risk. So, um, so, you know, go into them with a quite compelling proposition about these are the postcodes in London we've penetrated. Penetrate is not a great word. We've, we've, <laughs> we've, we've, we've actually been successful in... Um, is a pretty good thing, because what they can see then is they can de-risk their investment and say, well, actually, if you replicate this out in Manchester, Leeds, etc., then actually this is a very backable business. And I think that's why we were successful running, raising money from Index. Looking back at it now, I wish we'd done it a year, 18 months earlier. I still think Just Eat would be further along now than we would have been then if we'd have known that, but we just didn't know what we didn't know. And Alex, you started about the same time, is that right? 
So we started um, ResinoHassle.com in 2010, 2011. Um, and I'm, I'm totally with you. Like, I look back on it. We were so green. We, like, knew nothing. Um, and we we just... We got caught up in this whole... Because um, we went into an accelerator. It was the second accelerator in the UK after Seed Camp. It was uh, what is now Techstars. And so that was really, like, going to university. And so we got immersed in 12 weeks into, like... What is an MVP? Like, how, what is channel marketing? Like, stuff I'd never even heard of. So that was really the start for us. Um, but what that meant is, because we'd gone in that path, it was, it was not even... There wasn't even another option other than raising money. So we went straight out to raise angel money, and then we raised that angel money of 250, and then we got profitable by, by the end of 2013. Um, only 20,000 um, pounds a month were we doing, but we were profitable. And then all of a sudden, all these VCs started taking an interest in us. So, and then I got in this really competitive war between Index and Excel, and they both just kept upping the valuation and upping the, upping the amount of money they wanted to give us. So we went out for a million, and we came in with, like, four. And we were turning over £20,000 worth of, of revenue, and we were four people. Um, so, one, we just couldn't... We couldn't hold a valuation like that. We were chasing it from the minute we went out the door. Two, it was a bit like when you plan a wedding, you don't plan the marriage. Have you ever heard that? Like, that's why marriages fall over. So we planned this raise. Not, ne you know, I'd never... I didn't know what um, preferred shares were. I didn't understand what preemption was or any of these terms. And I was like a deer in the headlights. And I'll never, ever forget one day... And I won't say who the VC is, because he's a good friend of mine, but him, like, getting very aggro with me. And I was in the middle of Oxford Circus, and I just started crying. And I was like, but please don't shout at me, because I really don't know what I'm doing, and I don't know whether to take your offer or their offer. And it was just awful, and I was completely green. And then, lo and behold, we were just chasing the valuation. Then what was really nice about that and what was unusual about the hassle story is we got an exit within two and a half years, which is very, very fast and totally unexpected. And, again, hadn't ever thought about how we were going to exit. It's that last slide on a deck, isn't it, where you're going to put your potential acquirers, but you're just sort of making it up? That was kind of us. And so when we, like, exited, again, I can empathise with you, it was like I just had a baby. So <clears throat> she was three weeks old when I got on a plane to Munich to raise a Series B, started raising a Series B, and then got inbound, and then we ran both processes, because we're just clever like that, and just to see which one went over the finish line, and it was the sale. So then suddenly, like, four, five, five months later, I've sold this company, which is mental. But what was nice about that is that we then said we'd never do it again, which was clearly a lie, because, like, six months after being at Index, we, we, I was doing an extension and I realised, like, how broken the construction sector is. So what was good about it is we went into it with our eyes open, so we did all of the things that we did right, we did them right again, and we avoided all of the mistakes that we'd made, like raising venture for a business that wasn't suited to it, et cetera, et cetera. And I, it's like I've got a do-over company. I get to kind of, It's like my second marriage, and second marriages are generally more productive and um, <laughs> longer-lasting and richer than first marriages. In your no experience of that? I've got one marriage. I'm doing all right. Like, he's hanging in there ten years, so he's gone through two, two companies with me so far. And I tend to have a baby as soon as i found a company, so I've just had my second. So it's a good playbook. Now, I know we all read a lot about the perfect examples of the great things that happen when people read the PR stories of, you know, the money raised and the journey you've been on and the sort of storytelling aspect that you try and paint your company in in the best light possible. And of course, that makes sense. But, you know, certainly in my experience, just running my last company, you know, we raised four million pounds and it felt, you know, it felt like a good accomplishment at the time. But that was basically all until you sort of read about the next company that's your competitor that's raised five million or 10 million. And, 
you know, ultimately is a way more sort of checker journey of what goes on behind the scenes uh, in your mind. And, you know, some of the doubt and some of the arguments and some of the, uh, I guess, frustrations and insecurities that come from uh, a fundraising journey like that, where you're always sort of selling this vision and you're not necessarily able to articulate it or execute exactly how you felt. So I thought it'd be good to just explore temporarily with you guys uh, some of the conversations, uh, disagreements, maybe even if they exist, horror stories that have happened in your own fundraising journeys, more than anything, just to demonstrate that you guys are also human. And this 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 shit does actually happen to you as well. So I guess, in no particular order, how about you, Alex? I'm gonna, so I'm gonna tell you a story. This is really recent. So when I say it, he's gonna know when he when he listens to this. So we just, we raise some money. We don't declare our funding rounds because I don't believe that they're milestones and they're things to be celebrated. I believe profitability is something to be celebrated. So anyway, I've just raised quite a lot of money and it was really, really stressful because I'd just come back from maternity leave and um, the lawyers that we were using were not good. And, and the brunt of it all was, I was trying to get hold of someone to close this round. And when I, the first thing I saw on Instagram was a picture of this snowy hillside with deer posted like on the Wednesday morning when I'd been trying to get hold of this person all day long. So I took a screenshot in the back of the Uber, fired it off to Jules and was like, oh yeah, working so hard, can't answer the phone, ha ha ha. But um, had not sent it to Jules, had sent it to the person. And I just was like, oh my God, you know when the entire, your entire pit of your stomach just falls out and you're like, and I'd started hyperventilating and I just followed it up with, lol. (laughs) 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 And completely styled it out. And um, seems like it's all right. So that's, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not really a horror story, that's just... Oh, that uh, was pretty bad, we hadn't closed. Yeah, okay, fine. So, um, uh, yeah, anything else to contribute? You know, times things that might have gone bad, not quite so comfortably. I mean, that has quite a happy ending. I know what you're fishing for. I know, I know you know what I'm fishing for. Give the people what they want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, um... Don't leave us at a stalemate here. Do you know, every, every porter in London has been trying to get this story out of me for like, years, and somehow Dan managed to squeeze it out of me. So when um, so I raised this money from this investor that you can look up, um, and we raised the, the four million. Um, and then, so my husband and I have been trying for a child for two years before that. And then in the, in the sort of December before I went to raise this money, I was just like, this, this thing's never going to happen. It's super stressful. Let's just not have a baby. I'm like, cool with that. I'm, I'm loving work. So that was it. We didn't bother anymore. So I raised all this money and that was in like, it dropped in the like March, April. And then in the May, we went on holiday and I put my phone in the um, safe, which is apparently contraception. Um, I came back and I was pregnant and I just shat myself because... We'd just taken in four million. We'd just opened in Ireland. We were scaling across the UK and we were about to launch in France. And I was like, there's no space for a baby. So I hid it for like six months until like I couldn't hide it anymore because I was like obviously showing. I mean, I did board meetings in tents and everything. It was brilliant. And so eventually, like I told Jules and she's like, dude, you've just got to tell them. And they just had the worst reaction I've ever seen. Um, You lied to us. You shouldn't have taken our money. You can't take maternity leave. Dragged Jules in, told her that she wasn't allowed to have a kid in the next 12 months, just like... And that was the end of the relationship, really. It just went from bad to worse there on after. And so the sale was... That helped expedite the sale, I guess. 
Is that what you wanted? That's an important story to share. Realistically, it's not all, it's not all sunshine and roses, and obviously... I think, it, um, I think what it demonstrates is I've never had trouble raising money as a woman, and I, th I often think that's because there's two of us. So Jules is also a girl. I know we've got boys' names, Alex and Jules, so that's quite fun when people don't know who's coming in. They're like, hiya! And they're like, oh, expecting dudes. But um, I think what was... Um, We've never had a problem with that, but I, what I've heard so many times and people do not speak out about is women in, in founding positions struggle to have children in this industry because, um, because they play an important role in a company. There's just this intrinsic doubt that they can cope. And I think I'm living proof. I've done two businesses and I've had a child rapidly after everyone. So I'd Evan, uh, I got pregnant with her two months after raising our seed round, had her business, Jules doubled the size of the business in six months when I was on mat leave. So I think for all women sitting in the audience that are thinking about like, how do you run a business and have children? You can do it. You absolutely can do it as long as you've got the right support network. And what I want is for investors to join us in being that support rather than pushing against us. I mean, talking about things I would never want to do, you know, being a single founder, now that is, uh, A, is, is admirable from my point of view on the basis of, I just remember how much support I get from my co-founder having someone around me to bounce ideas off with. Going out to raise that kind of money, being, um, again, a founder on your own with the amount of stuff you actually have to do and execute and pitch the vision and hire the people, it just sounds completely overwhelming. I mean, how do you actually get through that? I think the single founder thing has been, um, has been created by Paul Graham, okay? If you look at Paul Graham's essays, all the things, you know, sort of, you know, people invest in three co-founders. They invest in people who look the same and sound the same. Um, There's nothing in there that says you invest in a five-foot-tall Welsh woman who's just um, had a 30-year career in banking that's going to reinvent the industry. Um, so there's an awful lot of investing in people who are just like the formula. But because of who I, you know, my, my career and the fact that I was pretty determined, um, I managed to pull off lots and lots of meetings with people who I thought could help me, um, but weren't going to help me and didn't have a clue. Um, uh, and because I was starting all of this, I really thought that if you find the best people in the industry, and ask them what they would do, right? They would, it would be, it would be useful. I decided that um, when I was in the States doing fundraising, it'd be a good idea if I, uh, if I met a US tech uh, entrepreneur. Okay, so who do I know? Um, who, you know, ah, I was sitting in front of a Dell laptop, so I decided to go and meet Michael Dell. And I managed to get a meeting with him uh, and asked him, I'm starting a bank, what would you do? And he was quite useful. He'd bought a bank and he was an entrepreneur and he was very helpful, but he was he going to give me money? No. Um, when it came to trying to get help with marketing, I got Martin Sorrell to, to help and he was useless as well. Um, so, so, so I was quite good in, 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 in being very persistent um, to have meetings to try to make ways in which I could make this deal happen. But I was treading a very unusual path. I wasn't on the usual path of go to an accelerator, you know, go to Axel and Index, go to the various VCs, and then you will get funding. 
but that funding journey and you know sort of and bringing the people I did on the journey meant that when I was ready to take funding the business was quite well advanced and then I was able to raise quite a bit of money. I mean, for me, it's more about when people um, essentially, you know, single me out and treat me like an idiot for some of the the ways that I'm behaving or the the vision that I've pitched or the the sheer ambition behind some of the statements. And, you know, it can be very jarring for people when they sort of try to put you back in your place. And ultimately, you kind of uh, have these days where you feel almost embarrassed to be an entrepreneur, uh, suggesting that you can achieve any of these things. And people do a really good job of, of making you feel that way. And then at least if you've got your co-founder around you, you know, you've got this sort of perspective of, well, at least we're idiots together. It's not all just me. But, you know, as a sole founder, I guess, you know, how do you take on that criticism? How do you take on the sort of, you know, self-doubt that understandably is going to permeate through when you uh, meet objections from people who seem pretty smart and know what they're doing and in some cases are actually trying to be kind by telling you the truth you know how do you get through those sort of um, I guess mental health consideration moments when you're on your own well there's no one to argue with um I, I think as a as a sole founder it's you know if you are going to go into business with somebody else um, it, it has to be a relationship that works and you most and you both of you have to see the the business in a in a similar way, and sometimes things don't work out, and you know there, there can be lots of stresses in 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 startups, and sometimes you know so things you know take a change of direction. David, yourself, you're a co-founder, correct? Yeah, there's a load of us. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, recommend that to people. I would, because if I think about our experience of it, then I would say you definitely share the load, I think, around pressure. I think there's also, when you're in a team, and I do feel it was in a team, when one's down, one's up. You know, and I think human beings are quite perceptive, so when you see a partner's down, you try and lift them up, and when you see the other, when you get a bit too cocky, you try and knock them down a peg or two, because you know things are a bit harder than they probably are currently perceiving. Um, so I would say, yes, it is. I would also say that you know, for energy and, and for humour purposes, for us it was important because, you know, for us, you know, it wasn't that glamorous. If you think we're walking into lots of takeaways every day over and over again, I mean, it sounds great that we call ourselves a tech company, but Just Eat basically signed up kebab shops, right? Yeah. So um, that's what we did. So if you do that, you know, over and over again, it's quite nice when someone tells you you smell of kebab, you know, as a co-founder, so you know you can change your shirts. <laughs> Um, but no, so it helps a lot. And I think the other thing I would say is when you go and talk to VCs, you kind of, they like the perception, I think at least in the early days, that there's more than one of you. So it's the, un the under the bus syndrome. Um, so having two or three of you is useful. Um, and I would also add around the co-founder thing, along the way, not everyone stays on the journey because actually, you know, building companies, as many of you in the room will know, is tough. I mean, it's really tough. It's a very attritional process. Let's not take it too seriously because it's lots of fun too. But along the way, it is quite attritional. So if I think about Just Eat, if you go back to the guys we work with as a team, along the way, probably five of the main leading co-founders fell off the journey at various different stages, Series A, Series B, Series C at IPO. And actually, that's probably quite healthy because I think most of them all stayed probably a year too long. <laughs> in the end, just in terms of having enough, and then it brings renewal into the company. So I think one of the key things I learned on Just Eat along the journey was, when is it time to go? And, and, and I think that's an important thing to have a self-emotional intelligence around, because at some point, there is a right time, I think, for most people to go. Um, or if you're a founder, to step back 
and maybe you're on a board or something, or maybe you just leave completely and let someone else run it. So, and that's not easy because you're emotionally connected. Um, but definitely, I feel like at Just Eat, broadly speaking, we got that pretty right, although some conversations were pretty tough, but I think we, broadly speaking, got that right. And that's where board, good boards can help with that. Did you ever find yourself having to have that conversation with people that might not have had that sort of self-awareness? Yeah, because that's your job as a CEO, right? So, you know, your job as a CEO is to have those tough conversations, perceive them and plan them and plan the succession of the business. And I think, I think if I think there's, there's many things I got wrong, I think if I think there's one thing I got right at Just Eat along the way, I definitely had those tough conversations. I tried to have them early um, to give people time to adjust and I tried to bring people in that I hope would behave with the same level of sort of co-founding spirit that we'd all sort of embarked on the journey together with. And I think we got it wrong, but we also got it right more than often than we didn't. So I'm glad we did that because, you know, you want everyone to look back at it and say they played a massive part and it was hugely successful and it was great fun, but what you don't want to do is hold the company back. And that's where those conversations are hard when, you know, you haven't quite, you know, and you can develop people, of course you can, but at some point, at least I can think of three occasions where actually it was time to have that conversation. And as tough as it was, I'm glad that I did, right? I just think that's what you're paid to do in the end. In these moments, you know, you go through the downs, you go through the ups, you know, do you find time to actually celebrate your wins? Do you give yourself the space to take a moment and, and breathe it all in? We have to remind ourselves to celebrate big moments. Um, we recently um, were awarded the 100 million from the Capability and Innovation Fund, um, which was a competition with funding being handed out um, to banks that could compete against the big banks. I'd been very, I'd been very open by saying to the media that we were, um, we deserved the, the award and that with that award we would build uh, an SME bank that had never been seen before, that would actually change experiences for SME businesses um, around the country. And they were going to tell us the night before, and we were sworn to secrecy until it released in the press the following day. So I, I actually had to leave the premises and sit in a hotel around the corner because if it was good news or it was bad news, you could see it on my face. Mm -hmm. And the good news came through that we had been trusted um, with this award. It was, it, it, it is, it's a huge award. It shows a huge amount of faith in us and what we're going to do to change, to change banking. Um, but we couldn't celebrate. Now the pressure is on to deliver. Yeah. But it's um, a competition, and if you win a competition... I think, but don't, I don't know about uh, you, but I think when... Like, you have these points of euphoria when you've... If any of you... You've loads of hands went up when you said you'd raise money. You have these points of euphoria, and it's when you have, like, a really good meeting, or you get your first angel saying that they're in, or you get your first term sheet. But the problem is it takes so long to get from that point of a signed deal to the money hitting the bank that by the time... You're just worn out by the end of the... Like, by the time you get there. And so it kind of goes in. It's just, like, massive anticlimax. And then you're like... Right then, better get delivering on that, you know, fictitious yeah. plan that we sold them on. Um, and so I, I just find it's a really strange experience raising money because you want to celebrate at times it's not appropriate and then when it finally happens, you're like, what out? No, we, we were actually completely inappropriate. We, we celebrated I love that. in advance of, of success. Um, <laughs> so we, 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 I used to have a little bit of a philosophy that... Um, that came from Life of Brian. Because uh, the scene at the end resonates with me. You start with nothing, 
if you end with nothing, what have you lost? Nothing. So that was probably a little bit uncomfortable in the VC pitch. But, um, but the reality was, honestly, that's how I felt. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that for, you know, I, I, that was honestly how I felt. And I think for me, that was very liberating. Because I thought, do you know what? In the end, in the end, as serious as all this feels, making money, blah, building companies, actually, what is the worst? The worst that happens, the worst that happens is we don't succeed. That is the worst that happens. And of course, that would be, that'd be really disappointing. You know, my kids would have gone to a crapper school, right? But the truth Lots is... Of people not getting kebabs when they want. Yeah, I mean, but the truth is, but the, truth is the, really, the really bad thing for me would have been not to have had a go, genuinely. Yeah. That was the bad thing for me, is not to have had a go. So the fact we had a go, I could live with the failure. I just couldn't live with not having a go. So that's quite... Cool. So we honestly, we did party. I remember we did our first Just Eat World party in Regent's Park. There was like 10 or 12 of us with a Marks and Spencer picnic. We called it Just Eat World Party. We had a lot of, you know, good branding, a uh, very unrealistic uh, uh, name. There was, like, Danes and British people, basically, and that was it, the uh, world party. Um, and we played rounders, and we just got... And, we, and that culture went through. We stopped playing rounders, but the culture, of, uh, the culture of partying didn't stop. And actually, in today's terms, we probably have to be a bit careful because this PC thing now is, you know, for me, is slightly odd, and I, but I also understand it. I think it's probably gone too far. But we had, we had quite a heavy party culture at Just Eat. If I look back on it now... 2006, 7, and 8, it was drinky. It was. It was boozy. Uh, it was inclusive, though. We all got drunk together. Um, um, but at the same time, at the same time, what I did create, and I don't regret it at all, which is why I'm being so frank about it, what it did create is a very strong bond, a group of people who felt we were in the trench together. And honestly, we would have done anything for each other come probably the first, after the first three, four, five years. And so I don't regret that at all. I think building cultures sometimes involves some risk, you know, building a culture involves identity. Identity means you have to stand for something, which means you stand against something. Otherwise, you're just a banal, boring company that just does a load of corporate style, I would call stand-up meetings, which is fine, but frankly, they bore the crap out of me. Now, coming on to the slightly more boring, potentially, but certainly helpful and insightful question uh, for the listeners anyway, you know, how do you set up a process around fundraising? Do you uh, you know, have a spreadsheet, do you use a Trello board, you know, do you, or do you just sort of hit and hope? I mean, Anne, obviously, you just go straight to Michael Dell. Uh, but for anyone else, you know, what are the processes you go through to absolutely win at funding? I think I've put an awful lot of effort into the deck and also into some videos I had made um, explaining the, the concept. The unfortunate thing was those videos were corny, and the only person who thought they weren't corny was me. At least and, you know now. Yeah, I know now. Okay. And I remember going to to the um, to the regulator, and uh, and on the way in, I had you know I had you know lawyers and you know regulatory advisors going in, and they were subtly in the lift going up. Whatever you do, don't show the video. Okay. <laughs> and I was having all these people telling me, you know, sort of. Whatever you do, stick to the script and don't show the video. At one point in the meeting, I thought things were going a bit flat. <laughs> so you showed the video? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I feel good about it. It was my company, it was my video, and it was corny. But, you know, but I think that you do get stuck in a rut in some of these presentations. You know, there's things you say that sound great in your head but sound absolutely dreadful to everybody else. And having somebody to give you that feedback 
um, is very, very important. Um, but, you know, fundraising is very, very draining. Uh, you need a huge amount of resilience to, to cope with all that rejection. Um, you know, we, we, we constantly are being told that that idea is not a good idea and you never raise money for it and you have to do it hundreds and hundreds of times. And you have to pick yourself up and go to the next meeting as if it's the first. And, um, and the worrying thing is when you come up against the same VC at the end of the round, you know, at the end of the roadshow that you met in the beginning of the roadshow and in the interim you've changed firms uh, because the roadshow's taken so long. Um, so, so it is, um, fundraising is extremely draining. Um, but it's part of the job. You'll do it from the beginning of the company until your IPO. You've got to learn to enjoy it. David, did you learn to enjoy it? I loved it, actually. I didn't, it didn't bother me at all. I guess being bald and Welsh would get used to rejection. Um, <laughs> so, um, um, so, no, it didn't bother me. I, I actually saw it as a bit of a challenge. So I didn't, the only thing I didn't like was the repetition, and that stayed with me beyond uh, the IPO. Um, but we found fun ways to do it, like our CFO, I used to stroke his leg sometimes under the table when the VCs couldn't look. And Marcus over there will tell people that's true, because it is true. So when I used to get bored, I remember doing a 40-person investor meeting and doing that to him when he was trying to explain uh, a piece of M&A we did, and he tried to keep a straight face and then just burst into laughter. So there's, so there's things you can do to liven it up. But... Um, but I would say, in seriousness, I'd say there's two things. Never forget when you're basically raising money, really, it's just a sales pitch. And having now sat on the other side of the fence as, a, as an investor, you kind of want to leave them with two or three messages that are really clear. What, a, what's special about your business? What's great about you about founders? And three, why is this thing ever going to make money? They're probably the only three things that I'm going to remember from that 45 minutes or an hour. So I know sometimes you feel making a deck, you know, more is more. It really isn't. Less is more. So being really clear about these are the three things that make us this and what we're going to do special are the things that will probably get the investor excited if they get you excited. So I would do the so what test yourself. You know, when I read these slides to myself, when I present it to myself, am I getting fired up? If you're getting fired up, the person receiving it will probably get fired up. If you're thinking, well, there's a lot of content, there's definitely too much content. So I would, I would st stick to basic rules like that. Um, and then just see it as a challenge, because investors like to think they're smart and ask good questions, but the truth is this. They can never know what you know about your company. So there is nothing they can ask you that you can't deal with. And I think as long as you remember that, then you'll be fine. And in the end, they need you more than you need them, as much as they, you, know, you, need, you think you want their money. If you really believe in your business, you'll find a way, I think. Um, so I think... So the, the more serious the fundraising, um, the, more, the less frequent the meetings should be. So if you're doing angel round, I think you can do two angel meetings a day, but when you're doing VCs, only ever one. And the reason for that is you're basically on stage and you're there to perform and you will feel absolutely knackered after a good meeting because you'll have given it everything. So you need to be high energy, intonation in your voice, up, down, engaging them, looking around, which means nothing other than a word, an image or a chart on a slide and no more than 10 slides. I totally agree with you. When I walk into a meeting, I don't even look at my slides. They're there to signpost, but you don't want investors scribbling down and like squinting at figures. It's basically, it, all you're doing is to, you're narrating a story and you're selling it. And the reason that it's so important that your slides are not filled with stuff and that you're speaking to them like I'm engaging with you and looking at you face to face and trying to get you in the moment is because they're buying you. 
even when you get to a Series B and a C level, like obviously you need the data to back your company up. They're going to get to that. But the first meeting is all about them getting hooked on you. So even if you're not, what I would say is if you're in a founding team, send your most charismatic out. Because actually, like, that's what they're doing there. And it's sad, you know, like, but I agree with you. Like, we used to play buzzword bingo. So Jules and I would go into these meetings so many times and we try and get things like heteroscedasticity into the pitch and, like, you know, words that we found, like, were quite funny. But, like, we're massive geeks, by the way. Um, and we'd see if we could get those in to just kind of, like, liven it up. Because you literally, sometimes I would forget what I'd said. Because you're on autopilot, so sometimes we're like, have I made this point before? Um, so, yeah, that's why you can only ever do one a day, otherwise you, you risk, like... And then the final piece of advice is A, B, C. So segment your investor base into A's, B's and C's. Your A's are your Tier 2, 3 funds that you um, don't really want money from, but you'd take it if it was there. Your B's are the guys that are beyond you, that are, are going to lend more than... So you're, you're there as a marketing exercise, and your C's are the ones you want, and that's how you crack it out. Two weeks A's, two weeks B's, two weeks C's. So by the time you get into your C's, which are your target audience, you are pitch perfect, you know every answer. You're even finishing each other's sentences and making crap jokes, but they sound really natural. If you do it that way, you'll never fail because you'll be so slick. Never, ever take a meeting with an investor um, to, to pitch them if you are not and you really want their money if you haven't done at least three weeks of warm-up first because you'll just blow it. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top there will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. Technology is not the problem. Mobile phones are not the problem. They are tools. It's how we use them that matters. What meditation and mindfulness do is allow you to rethink how you use these devices because they're extraordinary. We carry supercomputers with us wherever we go. We can do so much with them, but if we're not conscious about how we do it, it can make us miserable. What do you get when you bring together the founders of the world's largest meditation app and the world's largest healthcare app? Simple. You get a masterclass of insight, humility, passion and brilliance. So join us next week to hear from Michael Acton-Smith and Ali Parser, who meet for the first time on stage and discuss the future of mental and physical health only on Secret Leaders. So tune in or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, Editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts and our upcoming live events on our website SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.